Our scripture lesson this morning is from Acts, the 22nd chapter. If you want to look it up, it's on page 1167 in uh, uh, P Bible. If you have one of the large print editions, it's on page 1732. Reading from Acts 22, 1 through 10, and 21 through 29. This was in Aramaic that Paul was speaking. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, and brought up in this city. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers, and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way unto their death, arresting both men and women, throwing them into prison, as also the high priest and all the council can testify. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now my companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. Then the Lord said to me, Go. I will send you far away to the Gentiles. This is in verses 21 through 29. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him! He's not fit to live! As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul said. Paul replied. Those who were about to question him withdrew immediately. 
The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Let the God, God bless the reading of his word. like I left my notes over here. Um, it's been that kind of morning. But <laughs> an exciting morning, right? As we get to celebrate baptism today. And, and uh, so make sure you catch the, the Tucker family afterwards and congratulate them and give them a hug. Uh, it's awesome. We are in the second part of this series that... Uh, we started last week, and we're beginning with a couple of kind of foundational messages with regard to what does it mean for you to live as a Christian in these United States of America? How, we could have called this how to be a Christian in America, maybe. And, and so this is, the goal is to be real practical. I mean, we live in a time and a season where you look around at all that's going on, and you wonder, you know, how, how do I live as a Christian in it? election cycle like this one, right? How do I live as a Christian when our nation seems so divided? How do I live as a Christian when the morals of our nation are, are questionable at times? And, and um, what's okay for me as a Christian and not here in this culture that we live in? And so that's kind of the goal of this series, but we're, as we start out, I just feel like there's a couple of things we've got to get cleared up first before we can really get more practical and the first one we looked at last week when we talked about patriotism's place and I feel like a lot of us we, we live as though you know well we were we were born an American citizen right as soon as we were born and and for a lot of us that American I'm American is is like an umbrella and everything else comes under that umbrella right you're under that umbrella, you're a, you're a southerner. Under that umbrella, you're either a Democrat or Republican or independent or whatever you are. Under that umbrella, you, you know, you're an LSU fan or a Saints fan or a, you know, some other kind of heathen. But uh, if you, under that umbrella, you're a Christian or you're a, you know, a growing percentage of Americans are, are nuns or nons, you know, non-affiliated. Or you're under that umbrella, you're a Buddhist, or you're a Muslim, or you're a Catholic, or you're a whatever you are, you know. Uh, but we're Americans, and under that are all these different segments, you know. And, and for many of us, you know, and for many people in the United States, being Christian is like, you know, it's like one of the voting blocks, you know, that the politicians try to cater to. It's, it's just part of who you are as an American, and what we talked about last week is, is how we need to flip that around. That's the wrong place for patriotism. What is patriotism's place? Well, it's secondary at best because when we come into Christ, our citizenship is transferred to his kingdom. And that's why Jesus' apostles, when they wrote to, uh, when they wrote to Christians of their day, they'd say things like, uh, this is addressed to the aliens, the foreigners, 
living, you know, scattered out throughout, you know, this region and that region. They, they would today, they'd say, this is to the foreigners living in America. Because our citizenship has been transferred to a, another kingdom. And now our American citizenship is secondary. It has to answer to our primary citizenship, which is in Christ. And we pointed out, you know, that when we die, no matter how patriotic our burial, our resurrection is going to be in Christ. All right? And there will be no more America. Our king and his kingdom knows no borders and knows no end. And, and that can't be said of any other earthly kingdom. And so we remember that our brothers and sisters in Christ are also living as foreigners in their countries all around the world. And we all have the same king. And having that perspective is necessary before we can go any further into what it practically means to live as a Christian in these United States. And, and today we're going to take another step and to say, what does it look like? What does it mean to leverage our liberty? To leverage our liberty. Now, we all know people who, uh, you know, they, they're just good people to know. Like, it's good to know a doctor because one day they might save your life, you know. We know that from past experience. Uh, it's good to know a, a dentist. You might get free cleanings. You know, that's good, that's good stuff. We've, we've experienced that in the past, too. Uh, it's good to know someone who's good at working on cars, right? If, if that's not you, because then you can avoid some unnecessary, you know, $100 an hour labor fees at the shop, you know, just to tell you that uh, your check engine light was, it was nothing. But, you know, it's good to know people who are experts in these areas. It's good to know someone who's, you know, kind of high up in city government or something. So when you get that ticket that's unfair because none of them are ever fair, right? Then, then there's someone you can call and they can take care of it. It's good to know. Some, it's good to be some kind of people, you know? It's, I've always thought it'd be good to be one of those girls who can just turn on the charm or, or the waterworks and just get out of everything, you know? <laughs> Never have to face troubles. Uh, you know, most of us, we don't, we're not even, no, we don't know what that feels like. Uh, it's good to be rich and powerful because everybody, you know, kind of defers to you, right? Or, uh, you know, they want to do something nice for you in hopes that you'll do something nice for them. Uh, but if you're not, and there's not much you can do for them, then there's, you know, less likely that they're going to do. So there's nice people to know. There's nice people to be. Uh, Julie's dad is one of those people that's nice to know because he's kind of one of those jack-of-all-trades kind of guys that also likes to help people out. And so, you know, people like to know him. Uh, he's saved his friends and family and neighbors probably untold thousands of dollars just by helping them do like do-it-yourself projects instead of paying some contractor to come do it. And, uh, and so that's nice to know someone like that. What if, what if it were possible that you were someone like that? What if it was possible that, you know, for most people in the world, they'd look at you as someone who has certain advantages uh, that could be leveraged for the sake of others? I want to suggest to us today that we all, each of us sitting here, have one advantage that most of the world doesn't have. And that's that we were born in America. We, were, we are American citizens. And with that citizenship comes certain rights, certain privileges, 
that most of the world doesn't know or doesn't have. What does it look like for you to leverage your liberty, to leverage your advantages as an American for the sake of others? Because once we get that first bit cleared up about what comes first, and we realize that God's kingdom comes first, then everything else we have is something that can be used for His glory and for His kingdom. And surely our American citizenship falls under that umbrella. And we actually have a great example of someone doing something like this in Scripture, in that passage that we read just a few moments ago about the Apostle Paul. And he had a citizenship in his day that came with lots of privileges and lots of uh, rights and things that most of the world didn't enjoy. And, and he was able to leverage that in some really cool ways for the kingdom's advantage. And so let's take a little bit today and just look at the Apostle Paul's uh, citizenship and, and how he used that, it's particularly his Roman citizenship. As we talked about last week, he held three different really cool citizenships that he had been proud of in his life and, and still was in many ways, in a healthy way. Uh, but we're going to look particularly at his Roman citizenship today. And the account we read today is kind of in the middle of a long segment of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is, is a, an account of the early church from the day that Jesus ascended into heaven to the right hand of the Father and turned things over to his apostles to get things going. And, and the Holy Spirit came on them and, and the church was launched. And all these, I mean, it's a really cool book to dive into. If you haven't read the book of Acts, go read the book of Acts and just see how the early church was started. Our, our, you know, the, our forefathers, if you will, of our kingdom. And, and what they went through and what they did, what they experienced. It's so amazing what God did through the early church. But in the last eight or nine chapters, we have this kind of just this whole story of the end of Paul's missionary life, if you will. And what had happened was he felt called, he felt like it was time for him to go back to Jerusalem, back to the place where it had all begun, where the church had been launched. He felt it was time to go back. He was out in the Roman Empire spreading the gospel in areas that we now call Greece or Italy, uh, you know, places like uh, Hungary and all those, you know, all those uh, cities there in eastern, southeastern Europe and Turkey and all, you know, that whole region. And he was, he had been spreading the gospel there. And he told his companions and the people he had been ministering to, "It's time for me to go to Jerusalem." And they all say, "Don't do it." <laughs> and that's kind of amazing to me. They were concerned for Paul's safety if he went back to Jerusalem. But these are people, I mean, Paul had been facing safety issues <laughs> in his missionary journeys the whole time. I mean, there in their countries, he had been beaten nearly to death multiple times. He had faced all kinds, I mean, you know, jail time, being flogged, you know, you name it. He had experienced it. He had gone hungry for the gospel. He had been in chains for the gospel. And these people who had been with him through that or had seen things like that happen... When he says, I'm going to head to Jerusalem, they say, don't do it. Because they knew if he went to Jerusalem, that would probably be the end of Paul's 
ministry. Why? Why Jerusalem? I mean, you would think that it would make sense if that would be a safer place. I mean, Christian headquarters, uh, you know, it was launched from there. What, what's the big deal? Well, if you think that the Roman citizens and the Greeks didn't like Paul, and many of them didn't, he was a controversial figure everywhere he went. He was especially controversial in Jerusalem. Paul had been, you know, in Jerusalem, the Jews, they didn't didn't think highly of Christians. That's where persecution first broke out. That's where persecution was most intense. And yet there was still a remnant, even church leaders, in and around Jerusalem. But it was not a friendly place for Christians. And in fact, Paul had been, you know, back when he went by Saul had been the ringleader or a ringleader of getting that persecution started and ramped up. He oversaw the, the first martyr, you know, as they stoned Stephen to death in the streets for his message of the gospel. And, and yet now, Paul was a missionary, a, a, an apostle of that same <laughs> group of you know, people that the Jewish folks rejected as blasphemers, he was one of them now. What do you call that? That You call that a traitor, right? You call that a traitor. And to them, he was a traitor. But he was worse than a traitor. He was someone who cared about and hung out with Romans and Greeks, who the, Gentile, the Jews called Gentiles, and whom they despised. And so he was a traitor, and he was worse than a traitor. And when he went back to Jerusalem, he was taking his life in his hands, as it were, or trusting his life to God. And we read in Acts, when we read just a few moments ago, that when he showed up, he was there for a few days, but then someone recognized him in the temple. It was kind of a big festival going on because there was lots of crowds from out of town and that's when the crowds from out of town came. We don't know which festival. I don't know which festival. But big crowds there. Someone recognizes, hey, that's Paul. We know who he is. We know what he says. And violence erupts. You've got to understand, Jerusalem was already on edge. That's why they would station you know, more military presence there when these big festivals would happen. Uh, that's why they put a, a Roman governor and, and Roman art military, you know, oversight right there around the temple and, and uh, built a fortress attached to the temple so that they could oversee what was going on and, and put a stop to any unrest before it gets too crazy. Jerusalem was on edge and it only had a few more decades before Rome would just say enough's enough and squash it, you know. They would literally tear the temple down in 70 AD. And this is, you know, around probably right before 50 AD, somewhere in the late 40s maybe, right around 50 AD. And so just a couple decades away, I mean, things were tense. And as this violence erupts, Paul begins to get beaten I mean, there's no trial here. There's no, uh, you know, questioning of Paul. It's, hey, that's that Paul guy. Let's beat him up. And, and they <laughs> jump on him. And Paul might have died right there if it hadn't been for a Roman commander who, again, was there probably because of this festival, sees what's happening, runs 
into the temple with his troops and puts a stop to the unrest, grabs Paul. They're dragging him out. And Paul says, can I talk to him for a minute? Can I talk to the crowd for a minute? And they said, all right. Give it a try. And, and Paul turns around. you got a picture. I mean, he's probably having to straighten himself up. He's stiff. He's bruised. He just took a beating. He's probably bleeding. And he begins to speak. And they hear him speak Aramaic. And the ones in the crowd who are just going by hearsay and didn't really know Paul that well were really surprised by this. Um, how can we put this? this is, I mean, it was like the local dialect. And he was speaking in it. And they considered him an outsider. And he showed up and talked to him as an insider. Uh, this is bigger than like if, if I go to Guatemala and speak Spanish. You know, okay, well, a lot of people know Spanish. <laughs> this is Aramaic. This would be more like if, if someone from like Mexico came to southern Louisiana and found some Cajuns and started talking Cajun. It'd be like, whoa, <laughs> you know, here's, a, here's a Mexican that knows Cajun. Let's listen to what he has to say, you know. So they all get quiet and they say, what does this guy have to say? And he begins to tell his testimony. He begins to essentially share the gospel with these people. And they're listening and they're engaged because he's speaking to them in their language. And they're engaged right up until the point when he says... And then God sent me to the Gentiles. <laughs> no. No, that's too much. That's too much for that audience to tolerate. And so they stand up and they begin to shout him down. And they say, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. I mean, you want to talk about some anger? You want to talk about some you know, racism, whatever, discrimination, whatever you want to call it? The Jews did not think highly of the Gentiles, did they? I mean, you, you want to tell us that God is sending you to those people? The oppressors? <laughs> no. I don't think so. And they began to you know, throw their cloaks off and throw dust up in the air, which is a pretty weird scene for us to think about, you know? Uh, but they had dirt roads and, and dirt floors and stuff, and, and they begin to grab handfuls of dust and throw them up in the air. Paul should probably be glad that there weren't a bunch of stones laying around, because <laughs> they might have been flinging those. But from what I read, flinging dust in the air was like a sign of grief, of extreme anguish uh, in the Jewish culture. And so uh, they were basically, you know, announcing their grief at his blasphemy. That, that God wouldn't do such a thing and to say that he would was blasphemy. And the commander's standing there and he's like, well, this speech is over. <laughs> and so, so they drag Paul out and he says, I want to get to the bottom of this. And he tells his centurion, take Paul out. And beat the truth out of them. There's something going on here. See, the Romans, they could never figure out all the weird stuff of the Jews and, and what this whole thing is. With the, I mean, you know, to them, Christians, Jews, kind of cut from the same cloth. What's the big deal? Uh, they didn't get the nuances. They didn't get, you know, all that was going on with the Jewish people thing. And so he just said, this guy must be up to something to get them this angry. So go beat the truth out of him. So the centurion takes him and he stretches him out. To be flogged, and we're told in Acts 22:25 that as they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, "Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty?" Safe to say, no, <laughs> it was not legal, and and so this guy kind of probably took a uh, kind of swallowed hard, probably, and. Uh, 
took a step back and said, hold on, fellas, hold on. He gave it a thought for a minute and said, uh, go get the commander back out here. Because the centurion, see, he was over a hundred troops, and, and they were prestigious in the Roman Empire. They were prestigious people in the Roman military, for sure. Uh, but above them was the commander, and he had a thousand troops under him, which meant that you know, there were ten centurions serving under this one commander. He was a bigwig. He was top stuff. And the centurion figures, this is over my pay grade. And so he says, invites the commander back out. Now, the commander is a little bit suspicious that this bedraggled looking fellow would be a Roman citizen. That this fellow who was just beaten up in the temple would really be a Roman citizen. And so he kind of begins to question Paul. He tries to get to the bottom of it. And he kind of makes this leading statement. I had to pay a big price for my citizenship. And we later learned that this commander's name is Claudius Lysias. And so he probably bought his citizenship from Emperor Claudius and therefore took his name. That would have been typical in that day. But he paid a big price to become a Roman citizen because there was nothing better in the world than being a Roman citizen. And he's looking at Paul thinking, I don't think this guy has that kind of money. Although at one point Paul may have because we have good reason to believe that Paul came from a wealthy background, a wealthy family. But he was kind of far removed from that at this point after all his missionary journeys, all of his struggles, and after just being pummeled in the temple. And Paul says, yeah, well, I was born a Roman citizen. Somewhere or another he convinced that commander that he indeed was a freeborn Roman citizen. There were three ways to get citizenship in Rome. Born, buy it, or it could be awarded for outstanding service to the state. And they weren't all, you know, all the privileges perhaps were equal, but the prestige was not. And to be born a Roman citizen was more prestigious than to have had to buy it. And so you can hear the tone change in the way that they talk to Paul once they realize who he is and the circumstances. And indeed, they had been out of line to not give him a trial before they went to go beat him or to put him in chains. We don't know all the details of what the rights of a Roman citizen were, but we know some of them. And according to the Valerian and Portian laws, we're told that they received exemption from shameful punishments, such as scourging with rods or whips, and especially crucifixion. No Roman citizen was going to die on a cross. That's something they reserved for people that weren't Roman citizens. That was secured to every Roman citizen. And this sanctity of person had become almost a part of their religion, so that any violation of a Roman citizen's rights was esteemed a sacrilege. This is from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. It says that Roman citizenship included also the right of appeal to the emperor after a sentence had been passed, and no needless impediment must be interposed against a trial. And furthermore, the citizen had the right to be sent to Rome for trial before the emperor himself when charged with capital offenses. That's pretty prestigious 
Not everybody got to be a Roman citizen. There were only a few of them. And that's why if you got charged with a capital offense they were going to kill you, then you got to have your trial before the emperor himself. There were lots of rights afforded Romans. And Paul leveraged his for the sake of the kingdom. Because of his Roman citizenship, in the chapters that followed this, he had the chance to stand up before the Roman governor, Felix, of that day. And give an account, again, of his testimony and the gospel before this governor. The governor found it interesting, so he invited King Agrippa of the region to come, another prominent leader. And doubtless these prominent leaders had prominent leaders and influential people in their entourage as they came and time and again get to listen to Paul, share his story, share his testimony, share about Jesus. He used his Roman citizenship to take the gospel to some of the highest levels of government. Uh, Not only that, he was able to, because he was a Roman citizen, appeal to Caesar And they sent him all the way to the heart of the empire in Rome. They didn't know what they were getting into. (laughs) They sent Paul to the heart of their empire and he begins to spread the gospel in chains there and to write letters to the churches that we now hold sacred and special because these are the words of one sent directly by Jesus to be an apostle of the gospel. And he shares these words that we now have all these millennia later, two millennia later. Pretty cool how Paul was able to leverage his Roman citizenship for the sake of the kingdom. What about us? There was nothing better, nothing afforded more rights, nothing afforded more privileges than being a Roman citizen in Paul's day. (laughs) He enjoyed more freedoms and rights and advantages than anyone else on the planet. Doesn't that sound familiar? Has there ever been a nation that afforded more rights, more privileges, more freedoms, more liberty to her citizens than America? Not just today, but in all the ages past, as far as history can tell, this is a unique circumstance. Our citizens are afforded more rights, more protections than even those Roman citizens would have enjoyed. And it's more than that. Our advantages are more significant than that. And we'll look at some of them in a little bit. But if Paul could leverage his Roman citizenship for the sake of the kingdom, couldn't we surely do the same with our American citizenship And I want you to do most of the thinking on this. And in fact, maybe at lunch today, you can just kind of brainstorm some advantages you have as an American citizen and and how you could leverage those for the sake of the kingdom. But I just want to get your your brain started in gear, all right? So here's just a few. You have a right to vote. Now you can argue that, and lots of people do, that, well, uh, why even bother voting? It's not like my vote's going to make a difference, right? 
There's all these people voting, and mine's just one and, and dropping the bucket, and then they've got that whole wheel, weird electorate system, you know, electoral college, and I don't get that, and I feel like my vote doesn't even count. Well, one thing's for sure, it counts more and makes more of a difference than most anybody has been able to make as a citizen of another nation in any time past or present. The votes that we get to cast, uh, you know, we, we are, it's an honor that we have the ability to make the difference that we do have to make. And you may feel like you're one drop in the bucket, but that's a bigger drop than most people get to make. And so, use it. Even if it's just a small advantage, use it for the kingdom's advantage. And some of you are like, well, I vote all the time. Okay? The next question is, how do you use it? Are you leveraging that vote for the kingdom? Or what? You know, what's your priority when you walk into the voting booth? Is it, is it how you can, you know, is it the economy? Is it the, the you know, the uh, Second Amendment rights? What, what's your priority when you get in the voting booth? What, what are you voting based on? And can I just submit to you? That as a Christian, your number one, the, the thing that trumps everything else is, how does this vote, how can I use this vote to advance the kingdom's cause? And that might mean asking, you know, what, how do I need to vote if I want the gospel to be able to spread freely? How do I need to vote if, if I want us to be able to live out our faith in quiet dignity without fear of being you know, shut out and persecuted and killed. Well, it might mean, uh, you know, how can I leverage this vote to, uh, to help the poor? Because that was a big part of the gospel. How, how can I leverage this vote to, uh, you know, help end injustice? There's things we have to think about as Christ followers that are important to God, that are important to Jesus, that ought to come first if we're Christians, before we consider other things that America thinks are important. Another advantage you have as an American is access to technology that much of the world doesn't have access to. Now you may say, we may have access to the technology, but I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> and so I'll exempt you from this one. If you have the technology and you know what to do with it, if you know how to use all this, tech, the computer stuff, the internet stuff, the social media stuff, if you know how to use that stuff, then that's an advantage you have that much of the world doesn't have. How can you leverage that advantage for the sake of the kingdom? If you have a house, that's an advantage that a lot of people don't have, especially the kind of house that you have. And you may say, well, Pastor, you haven't seen my house. and ain't nothing to write home about, which is kind of a funny statement because home, house, sorry. Uh, it's really not funny. Okay. Uh, the, uh, you, if you have a house in America, you, I guarantee you, you have amenities that most of the world doesn't have in their house. It's a nice thing. It's a privilege. It's an advantage. How can you leverage your house for the kingdom? If you have a car that you own and you can get in it, turn the key and go wherever you want to go uh, directly, that's a pretty big advantage because most of the world walks or rides a bike, or rides public transportation. So, how could you leverage your car, or cars, to advance the kingdom? 
Chances are, if you live in America, you are wealthier than the average person of the six or seven billion who live on planet Earth. And so how can you leverage your wealth? How can you be, through generosity, someone who advances the kingdom? And here's a big one, maybe the biggest one. As an American, you have a free, at least still today, a free and secure platform. We have, you know, those First Amendment rights and the right to to speak your mind, the freedom of speech. I mean, you can, you have a, a platform, an ability to speak out. You can speak out at home and you can speak out in public. You can talk about what you want to talk about and you can voice your opinions. You can voice them at work around the water cooler. You can voice them online. You know, you can send an email to the president. <laughs> you have a platform that is free and secure. Unlike Paul, who if he opened his mouth in the wrong place or said the right thing, he might get dragged off to a prison cell or beaten. That's very unlikely to happen to you. In other parts of the world, that's not the case. Still yet today. So you have a a free and secure platform. When you pair that with the technology thing, I mean, you can get on there and say things, and it can travel around the world. And I mean, if you know what you're doing, you can. There's people out there with big, you know, regular old Joes that have big old platforms that lots of people listening to what they have to say. And doubtless you've got a few hundred friends on your Facebook account that are listening to what you have to say. So how can you leverage your free and secure platform? For the kingdom cause. We don't know how long we'll have it. We don't know if someday they'll say, no, that's hate speech or or whatever. We don't know. But right now, we still have it. And it's an advantage that we have as Americans. So how can we use it? For the kingdom. I want to suggest to us that it's time to start putting our first citizenship first. Put our first citizenship first. And part of that means leveraging our second citizenship for our first citizenship. If Paul used his Roman citizenship to the kingdom's advantage, then surely we can use our American citizenship to the kingdom's advantage. How can you use, how can you leverage your American citizenship for the kingdom cause. You can fill out the blank on your note card there and there's also a space on there for you to kind of brainstorm a little bit. What advantages do I have? What rights and privileges do I have as an American that are unique and that I could leverage for the sake of the kingdom? The big question that we're leaving with today is how can you leverage your American citizenship for the kingdom cause? Understanding these first two foundational things that, that our primary citizenship is in Christ's kingdom and that our American citizenship is something that we can leverage for the sake of the kingdom. This is fundamental to being able to go any further on what it means to practically live in today's America as a Christian. If, unless we can get these things straight, we can't talk about other parts of our citizenship. We can't talk about how to engage politically. We can't talk about, uh, you know how to engage the culture. We can't talk about even 
what it means to live you know, online in an online world. And we're actually going to have you know, one of the last messages of this series that focuses on, on online, what, you know, how to conduct ourselves. Because it's a, it's a new reality for most Americans. And so if you're, if you're not online, you can skip that week or you can take notes and pass them on to your kids or grandkids. <laughs> but Because uh, they're online and they're facing unique challenges in what it means to live as a Christian online. So we're going to talk about that as well. But these things have to come first. We have to get this straight. And here's what's amazing. When you start using your American citizenship to the kingdom's advantage, you'll actually be using your kingdom to America's advantage. When you start using your American citizenship to the kingdom's advantage, you'll actually be using your kingdom citizenship to America's advantage. Because we believe that what is good for the kingdom is good for America. It's good for everybody. And that isn't just, you know, God's ways are best, warm and fuzzy Sunday school talk. I mean, we literally believe that God's ways are the best ways for humanity. For us individually and as a society and as a world. We believe that His ways of life are are life-giving. That when we live together in God's ways, that our societies function better. That our governments work better. that, That things begin to fall into, that lives get better. When we follow His rules instead of you know, the world, what the world says is, is a good idea, you know, and we go with what God says is a good idea. It's just better for our life and our world. We believe that. And we believe that what He prescribes are not just for a whim or for His benefit, but for all our benefits. And that He should know, since He's the one that created all this in the first place. So if we want what's best for America then we should want what's best for the kingdom first. Start caring for what's best for the kingdom. How can you leverage your American citizenship for the kingdom cause? Let's pray together as the praise team comes. Father, we thank you for our nation and the tremendous privileges and rights and advantages that we are so blessed to enjoy. We admit that we have too often perhaps only enjoyed those privileges or only thought of ourselves and of our nation. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would instead fix our minds first and foremost on the things of Christ and of His kingdom. And teach us how to leverage our advantages to the kingdom's advantage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.